Welcome to Crossroads. Welcome back if you've been here before. If you're new, we're so happy that you're here. We'd love to get to know you, answer any questions you might have, pray for you, come up to me, anyone that looks like they know what they're doing, the Connection Center out front. We have multiple ways. We just want to get to know you. Well, you all know what today is. It's Palm Sunday, right? It's the beginning of Holy Week. Lent is coming to a close, and we're anticipating a really dark Friday and a really bright Sunday. Good Friday is looming, but before we get there, Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And there will be crowds saying, Hosanna, praise to the king, reciting a psalm that was to praise God. Now, we're in a series on the life of Paul, and we're not breaking that series to to jump into Palm Sunday. We're actually going to see something that's a result, not just of Palm Sunday, but of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We will get to see the ripple effects of the resurrection of Jesus and what happens when the kingdom of God moves into a city, namely the ancient city of Ephesus. But before we read our passage, there's one thing I want to put on your minds that we have to think through and keep at the forefront as we go through the text and as we go through and reflect today on what God has for us. And that's the theme of power. And in the series on the life of Paul, you can't help but see power everywhere. See, before Jesus even came into Paul's life, his life was a life marked by power. He was a Roman citizen. He was a disciple of the very famous rabbi. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a journey of power and privilege. And power had so seized his heart that nothing was going to get in his way. And it had gotten so bad that he was even breathing out murderous threats against people who were challenging his way of life, Christians. And then he met Jesus, and Jesus knocked him flat on his back with a power that wasn't his own, but was God. And the power that had seized Paul's heart in the first place since he was a boy had now been challenged, collided with, and subverted by the power of Jesus. And now his life was marked by a different kind of power. And in our text today, Paul is in a city that's all about power. Before we explain that, let's read our text. And if you've been around at Crossroads, you know that we take God and his word very seriously. So you'll sit for my words, but you'll stand for his. So if you could rise in body or in spirit. If you have one of the English Bibles, we are in either page 787 or 901. Acts 19, 11 through 41. Si tienes una de las Biblias en español que tenemos aquí, nosotros estamos en Hecho, capítulo 19, versículo 11, la página 736. If you guys didn't know, we also have Spanish Bibles here. So I just wanted to cover all my bases. Hear the word of God from Acts 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. But there were some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Yet after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. But about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. You see, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. You see, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk finally quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, 
he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we go through this passage, we have to remember that theme of power, how power seizes people's hearts. And we're going to do that in two ways. The first thing we're going to look at is the power dynamics that primed this magical city of Ephesus for a riot. And then we're going to step into the riot itself and feel the cosmic battle between Artemis of the Ephesians and Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And what you'll find at the end of all this is that Ephesus is not so different from Grand Rapids. And the power of God through Paul is not so different from the power of God through us. So let's start with the power dynamics in Ephesus. You see, the city of Ephesus was a city seized by magic, from amulets to secret incantations to sorcerer's scrolls. You couldn't help but feel the fog of enchantment when you walked into the city. And one thing you need to know about ancient magic is that it's not like the card tricks and illusions that we're used to today. It's about power and control and trying to take control of evil spirits and people by saving them from those evil spirits so that now they'll follow you and do your bidding. It's not so different from the gymnastics of the power struggles that we try to figure out today and take control of money and people to do our bidding. Throw enough money at a problem, it should go away. Throw enough magical incantations at a problem, it should go away, right? Well, the city of Ephesus knew what to do with power. And when power, when the kingdom of God rolled in, they knew what they were doing. But Luke words something very carefully in those first two verses of 11 and 12. He's very clear to say that it is God who is doing these extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul is not some very powerful sorcerer that they just got introduced to and they need to get close to him and buddy-buddy with him. It's God who they're meeting. And even though it's a little unusual that they take his work clothes, you can kind of imagine them breaking into Paul's workshop and taking his sweat rags and trying to bring it to people who need to be healed. It's a little bit unusual. The Bible doesn't always talk about miracles that way. Luke puts God right at the source of it all. But the city of Ephesus doesn't understand that. And that's why we get the story of 13 through 16. This traveling group of Jewish exorcists walk into the city like it's their home turf. They're magic people. This is a magic city. We know what we're doing here. And they hear about this man named Paul who's doing these things in the name of Jesus. And so they said, hey, another name. We're going to add it to our bag of tricks. You see, in the ancient world, when you're exercising demons, when you're casting them out, one of the ways to do that is to learn the name of that demon and then use the name of a more powerful evil spirit to either control that demon or cast it out. So Jesus just becomes another name in their toolbox. But that didn't work out quite so well for them. There's something different about the name of Jesus. You see, they walk into this house. There's an evil spirit and a man there. And they're trying to cast them out. And the response of the evil spirit is, Jesus I know, and I even know about Paul, but who are you? The, you can imagine the demon kind of flipping through his Rolodex, scraping through his contacts, trying to put a 
name to the face. He's like, I don't know who you are. Do you hear the mocking tone? It's ironic because the people who came there to learn the demon's name and cast him out were themselves cast out nameless. The demon didn't even need to know their name to kick them out. But he knew the name of Jesus. You see, these Jewish exorcists are seen as powerless even next to the name of Jesus. But do you see their mistake? They're trying to sprinkle a little Jesus on top of their magic. Trying to add Jesus to their toolbox, see if he could be as powerful for them as he was for Paul. Do you see how we do that sometimes, maybe? You see, we don't get to manipulate Jesus' name to get what we want. We don't get to dabble in Christianity without consequences. When Jesus shows up, things happen. Lives change. But like a weapon that they didn't know how to use, it blew up in the faces of the exorcists. And yet Jesus' name was still glorified. You see, you move on into the next story, and when this crazy thing happened, there are rumors and whispers spreading out throughout the entire city of Ephesus. They're scared out of their minds, so they're giving respect to the name of Jesus. But see, the kingdom of God doesn't just stop at respect. It doesn't want to just be respected amongst all the other religions. The kingdom of God is coming for transformation, and so the Spirit of God continues to work, and what happens? These believers actually come and confess their sin and they repent. And they host a book burning. They repent very publicly and it costs them a lot. And the reason I can say that it costs them a lot is because Luke actually gives us the rough estimate of how many books were burning, of how much money was actually in there. It was 50,000 drachmas. And if you, like me, haven't kept up on your exchange rate for drachmas, you can look at the bottom of your Bible, there should be a little footnote there that explains a drachma is about a day's wage. That's 50,000 days' wages. If you take a day off a week, 8,300 weeks of work. Over 160 years of pay being burned in the town square of Ephesus. And it made me think, what did following Jesus cost me? What did it cost you? A job, maybe? Job opportunities? Family members that maybe won't speak to you? Friends that you've lost along the way? Or maybe it didn't cost you much? That's the question that burns my mind. Should it have cost me more? Should it have cost me 160 years worth of work more? As we continue this story, we see that it costs the city something as well as these believers. See, the city's on edge now. With the sound of exorcists getting beat up and the smell of burning books in the air, the kingdom of God is not just overturning ideas in the hall of Tyrannus, which Paul had been lecturing in for two years, but it started to spill out into the streets and it's overturning ways of life. It's confronting magical incantations and turning them upside down, saying that's not how we do things anymore. It's threatening whole businesses. And we get to verse 20, where Luke records that in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You see, Jesus had triumphed over the philosophy of Ephesus, and now he trans triumphed over the magic of Ephesus. 
But with this momentum building up and expecting an even bigger story, Luke just interrupts really quickly to give us an itinerary, some travel plans of Paul. Here's why he does that. Paul, and the kingdom of God through Paul, is not satisfied to just stop at the magic capital of Asia Minor. No, it's, it's going through Macedonia and Achaia, back to Jerusalem, and eventually to the heart of the empire in Rome. And the kingdom of God will challenge the heart of Rome just like it's challenged the heart of Ephesus. But Luke is doing something else here, too. This story is here not just because he's trying to give travel plans and say, hey, we're doing history, i got to put some facts in there. He's doing it because he wants you to know that Paul didn't leave Ephesus because of the riot. The travel plans were already made. The kingdom of God is not in retreat. The kingdom of God is still advancing. But why give a riot then? Well, the riot is evidence that there is a wake of transformation that the kingdom of God leaves behind it. That it's not just a fad that's going to fade or a new and interesting cult that gets to play on the sidelines and gets to just join the group of all the other cults. You see, the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force that challenges the heart of a city, that threatens its idols. And when a heart is challenged and when idols are threatened, people react violently. Enter Demetrius, the silversmith, the one who gave a lot of business to the craftsmen there. Well, he's had enough. You see, the followers of the way have put on a good show in the city of Ephesus, and it's clear to everyone that there's a new player in town, and his name is Jesus. And Demetrius is pacing back and forth in his shop, replaying the events in his head. Well, well, if these people gave up all their books and all this money, and these people were beat up, what's next? Are we going to get rid of magic as a whole? Are we we getting rid of Artemis? Am I going to lose my business? And you can imagine the silversmith starting to see that there's something happening in Demetrius' shop, and they're kind of heading over And he starts to rile them up as well. And pretty soon, the whole crowd in front of the shop is swelling. And Demetrius decides, I'm going to give a speech. They're going to hear me this time. And he starts with their bank accounts. You know that this is how we make our money. Crowd yells, yeah! And you know that it's not only our city in danger, but the whole province of Asia because of Paul's anti-God message. You see, Demetrius isn't lying. He understands Paul's message very clearly. He knows the implications. He feels the shockwave in his business, on his money, on his power. And he's going to do something about it. So he starts to whip the crowd into a frenzy. And pretty soon, they're all seeing red. It's our city, it's our temple, it's our empire. He's not doing a good job of hiding what's really behind this anger. You see, behind this religious zeal and this patriotism for his city, Demetrius cares about money. 
And the love of money is busy weaving a tapestry of violence behind all of this. And in the middle of that tapestry is Demetrius and the Ephesian Chamber of Commerce holding high a statue to Artemis. Now before we go on, you might be wondering, how did he even get to this point? How did they get so angry? What happened here? Well, let's talk a little bit about Artemis and her temple. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. The roof of the temple was held by 127 columns, which were six stories high, six feet in diameter. It's a big place, but it's not just physically big. It's also financially big in the city. It owns over 77,000 acres of farmland around it. It produces wine. If you wanted to pay rent for certain buildings, you went to the temple. If you wanted to get a fishing license, you went to the temple. If you wanted to do some of your banking and your traveling salesman through the empire, Temple of Artemis. And a place this physically and financially big is bound to have some scandal in its history. And just 10 years before Paul showed up, there was just such a scandal. So much so that the empire authorities had actually shown up trying to investigate this financial impropriety in this temple. So you can imagine that the city is a little bit overzealous to protect the reputation of the temple right now. But let's talk about Artemis. You see, one writer says, there was no other metropolis in the empire whose body, soul, and spirit could so belong to a particular deity as did Ephesus to her patron goddess, Artemis. She was who they named their children after. She was the one that protected them from the goddesses of fate that answered their prayers. She's described as the one that protects from supernatural powers and authorities. There's actually been 33 different worship sites to Artemis discovered from Spain to Syria in the Empire of Rome. And Ephesus was fiercely loyal to Artemis because Artemis was who made Ephesus powerful. She is, after all, Artemis of the Ephesians. Very rarely did you say her name without that added phrase. So you can understand why Demetrius' speech fills the crowd with rage and they start to yell, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! See the spit flying out of their mouths, their eyes bulging. You can feel some of the power that seized their hearts. You can feel its rage, it was being threatened, and nobody, nobody threatens power and gets away with it. Have you ever felt that fear that sometimes boils over into rage and you are worried that something might be taken from you and then you realize you can't live without that thing? That's the kind of rage that boils over in the city and the mob starts to pick up people and steam as they're making their way to the theater and who should cross in front of them but Gaius and Aristarchus, two followers of the way, two co-conspirators of Paul. And they seize them with fire in their eyes and murder in their hearts, and they take them into the theater. Now, we don't know how many of them there are, but the theater could hold 20 to 25,000 people. And we know that the crowd was big enough that there was confusion everywhere, and it wasn't being corrected. Some of them don't even know why they're there. What do you do when the thing that you made more important than God is threatened? 
when it's your job, your house, your children, your spouse, the control of your time, the way you're seen before people, your image as a man or a woman, your technology gets threatened. Someone tells you to put away the phone. What happens? Do you feel something that you're just not sure where that came from? You react in a way and you go, whoa, that's not me. I, I didn't even know where that came out of. You snap at someone. Are you surprised by your own reaction? You see, when idols are threatened, when your heart is seized by an idol, by power, that you don't even realize, you act out of confusion, with anger, a deep visceral reaction. Because it's not just your idol that's being threatened in that moment. It's you. It's your very being. And when your idol is unmasked, is powerless, and unable to fulfill its promises, it's not just sad or, or a bummer, it's devastating. And when the kingdom of God moves into the city of Ephesus and unmasks these idols, the effects are disastrous. You see, quickly, Luke switches to a different scene and he sees Paul again. And Paul used to be making travel plans, but now he's making rescue plans. But he's held back by not just his disciples, but authorities in the area saying, please don't go in there. It makes this situation that much more dangerous. They don't want Paul to show up because they know what will happen. Someone's going to die. This is the part of the movie where the music ramps up and you get to the edge of your seat. But Luke is very clear from the beginning that the, the riot is not the fault of these Christians, these followers of the way, it's the fault of the Artemis followers. It's actually not even the fault of this other hated group in the empire, the Jews. And he gives that little kind of inbreaking there with Alexander the Jew being thrust up there saying, hey, tell him that it's not our fault. He opens his mouth, he's trying to defend the Jews and the anger in the room is just too much. And they shout, they chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And that went on for two hours. It's a long time to chant. And another writer I read said, at the end of the day, the only thing that false religion can do against Jesus and his servants is shout itself hoarse. It's a very powerful picture in the middle of this riot. The riot starts to calm down because a city clerk gets up on stage. City clerk is a very important person in Ephesus. They're not just the people taking notes. They're one of the highest offices in the city. They're the ones that explain to Rome what happens in the city, including riots like this one. So you can imagine he was very quick to get up on that stage and try to calm everything down. He didn't want to have to explain this to Rome. And his speech is as ironic as it is diplomatic. Because he begins by bragging about Artemis and the city. We're guardians of Artemis and her temple, guardians of her image which fell from heaven. It's kind of an interesting thing to include. Probably because Paul was saying gods made by human hands are no gods at all, and this is his way of saying, well, Artemis doesn't count. Wasn't made by human hands, fell from heaven. And these men, they're not saying anything against the temple or the goddess. What's ironic is that the followers of the way are, in fact, denying these undeniable truths. But he continues, if Demetrius and his group, they've got a problem, their courts, their authorities to settle this, 
Let them take them to court. And if they still weren't satisfied, there's a regularly scheduled legal assembly. You can kind of feel the politician come out. There's a regularly scheduled town hall. Please come talk to us. But he's afraid. And he ends saying, we're going to be charged for rioting. And we have no reason to explain what's happening here. Get out. You see, rioting in the Roman Empire was not taken very lightly. Rioting meant a city that used to be free is no longer going to be free and will have Roman legions patrolling the streets. The city clerk did not want that. And I don't imagine many people in the city wanted that. But then the story kind of ends. Crowds dismissed. And it continues with Paul talking to different disciples in Ephesus. But it serves as a powerful moment in the history of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is on the move. Things are happening. Lives are being transformed. People are being freed. Power is being embarrassed, destroyed, or threatened. But it was never left undisturbed. And as we enter into this Holy Week and we remember the events that we commemorate on Palm Sunday, you remember what Luke records in his gospel, Luke 19, 28-44, the one who started this radical movement, the one who preached the kingdom of God and didn't leave power undisturbed, but the one whose power was misunderstood. You see, in the same way that the Ephesians misunderstood the power of the kingdom of God in their city, the people living in Jerusalem misunderstood the power of Jesus coming into their city. He's riding on a donkey, and so they're ecstatic because their conquering king has arrived and he will exert his power over their captors. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God's power is not about dominion, but about what we sang today, giving itself away. You see, power gives itself up for the sake of the other in kingdom of God economics. Jesus entered Jerusalem knowing he was going to be betrayed, knowing he was going to die. Paul enters Ephesus knowing the power that's in that city, but knowing what the kingdom of God can do when it overturns power like only the kingdom of God does. You see, later on in history, the temple of Artemis can't be found. If you go to the city of Ephesus right now, it's one of the most well-excavated cities, but the temple is nowhere to be found. There's swampland, and we don't know what happened. But eventually, the temple toppled, and Jesus was preached in the city still. And so I've got three questions as we end tonight. First, do you feel the kingdom of God moving around you? Moving in you? Or are you busy trying to manipulate and control it? I know sometimes I catch myself trying to sprinkle a little Jesus on the thing I'm doing so that I can feel better about that thing. So that I can justify that thing. Hoping he not only approves but makes it better, gives me more control over that thing. Second question, what do you do when your way of life is threatened? Where do you, your emotions go, your heart, when the thing or the person you hold so dear is challenged? You see, emotions are the check engine light of the soul. 
But when the light not only turns on, but sets fire to the engine, it's something we should probably pay attention to. I'll ask the band to come up for this final question. Where does your heart and my heart still hold on to our past? Where do you still try to have a little Jesus and a little bit of money or power or control? Jesus is clear when he tells us in his letter through Paul to the Ephesians that we, are, we were once darkness and now we are light in the Lord. Therefore, we should live as children of light. What is your response to the kingdom of God? Do you try to manipulate it? Do you riot? Or do you burn your books? What is the kingdom of God doing in you, through you, around you? And how are you participating in it? And where are you in the way?